Hello and welcome to Resourceful, stories from the site, proudly brought to you by Resources Unearthed. At Resources Unearthed, we help executives, professionals and business owners in mining and resources to be successful both personally and professionally. We've created this podcast to help you in your employment or business, and we'll be chatting to people who have a proven track record of success in the industry. Thanks for joining us. Hi, my name's Brett Cripp, Managing Director and Founder of Resource Unearthed. Welcome to Resourceful Stories from the Site. Today, we're speaking with Ted Quayle, co-founder of EC Partners and of Mission Capital Management, a specialist advisor and manager in the energy sector. Ted and I went through university together, let's just say some years ago. He's been working in the investment management and commercial project advice side of the industry for over 20 years, working in energy developments and large-scale institutional asset management. I'm interested to hear from Ted where he started in the industry to then set up his own business slightly outside of it. I find it fascinating hearing how these pathways eventuated and the options people take along the way. I know many of our listeners and people in industry evolve their careers over time, and I know many of our listeners are keen to hear too. So welcome, Ted. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Brett. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So maybe to kick us off today, Ted, could you give us a brief overview of how you started with a metallurgical degree and what you did initially after uni and what led you to your current role with EC Partners? Metallurgy, as as you'd recall, in the 80s, the sort of top half of the class generally ended up in base metals and uh, the bottom half had, you know, again, exciting careers as graduate jobs ahead of them in sort of coal washing. I was definitely in the uh, in the latter category, and I had become very focused more on financial markets and particularly commodity markets that we did have some exposure to through the degree, in particular the London Metal Exchange. So I chose not to uh, go into my other alternative career of, of starting in the coal industry and, you know, something that, that I've looked back on sometimes with regret, but I immediately headed to the UK uh, as soon as I'd graduated and I um, went to the City of London and I just wrote to every member of the London Metal Exchange uh, that I could find and I spent my time in the in the City of London Library, researching as much about what was going on as I could and spending my meagre savings and called everyone I could and I eventually got a job after about three months when I was um, close to having to come home. I got a job with an LME broker-dealer. That was the start. So I was there for maybe four years, three years, three and a half years. And that was fantastic introduction to financial markets, I guess. I was in the sort of crucible. There was a lot going on at the time. That time, yeah. Yeah. When I, it came time to come home or come back to Australia, my working life to date was in financial markets. I came back to Sydney and while I did try initially to get a job continuing in commodities markets and there were some around, Financial markets in Sydney was was a much smaller space than it was in the UK, and uh, really, my I, I ended up in a big investment bank or sorry, a big merchant bank. I think you'd probably describe them as. The, uh, so I was in HSBC, and and I really moved probably away from having much to do with uh, with commodities 
finance at that point. I was then in a, a pretty exciting role for a young fellow as well because I was in a big dealing room. That gave me a lot of exposure to the financial markets broadly, particularly because I, I was on a night desk. So starting work at sort of 10 o'clock and finishing at 8 o'clock the next morning, but you did have to cover a lot of bases, I guess, because it was pretty sort of skeleton staff. So, you know, it gave me a lot of exposure to not only the full interest rate curve and the various bond products and money market products associated with that, but with foreign exchange price making and uh, as a futures commission merchant. So it was, it was a good job. But by then I was um, a long way away from engineering. It was the early years of the superannuation guarantee. Mm. So it was, uh, and it was in the Keating government, I, I guess. And I had, uh, um, I just saw superannuation guarantee as sort of like legislated growth for the fund management industry. Mm. So I sought to take a bit of a diversion away from, from banking and into fund management. You know, I, again, I just did that. I, I, was, I was lucky enough to already have a job while I was doing it, but I, I just applied for all, all sorts of jobs that I could find in fund management and it um, ended up taking me back to Brisbane to Suncorp Investment Management. I was lucky enough to be brought in to a team that had been established by a fellow who was recently recruited really out of academia to manage a group at Suncorp in what was called tactical asset allocation. And he was just sort of putting the team together. So so that was that was good. He was a very sort of driven, quite a young fellow. I mean, had had a sort of stellar career in academia and wanted to bring that into practice in fund management. So I was recruited as a sort of junior member of his team to, uh, again, he had a lot of other heavy-duty um, academics. So I was brought in more as someone who had a little bit of practical experience. <laughs> And I was at Suncorp for a few years, but Suncorp was was probably always going to be um, a space where it was going to be hard for this fellow Peter to really fulfil his ambitions. And I guess I'd sort of cottoned onto that fairly early and was strongly encouraging of him to uh, take any steps that he could to let us sort of fulfil our goals. So um, we left Suncorp and I began at TGM, which was this startup that that uh, Peter formed, and he took a small group of people out of Suncorp and some from other places. Very exciting, in but in terms of sort of the establishment of of businesses, um, something that for me was was fantastic at that time in my life because I was young and relatively high risk tolerance and not a whole lot of the financial obligations that, <laughs> that, that come along with, later. With family. <laughs> yeah. So our sort of core product at the time was really for domestic institutional superannuation funds and it was sort of a tactical asset allocation derivative overlay. Mm-hmm. It was actively changing exposure across different equity, bonds and currency markets. Yeah, yeah. And that product, you saw some significant success with domestic superannuation funds. And when we came time to expand, I guess, internationally, that sort of skill set is really more seen as um, global macro in in the hedge fund space. And it's sort of just part of the suite of different active strategies. Mm. And that one's global macro. TGM had a 
very rigorous and you know, academically driven process for doing tactical asset location or global macro. Um, there's a lot of fairly heavy-duty economists driving forecasts for global economies and those forecasts were then used for driving asset price model forecasts, asset price valuations. Um, we took those asset price valuations into a sort of big portfolio management model that we developed over time and used that for driving positions and we could design that to various volatility levels. We could scale it up and down. We ended up creating some sort of standard hedge fund type products which were sort of uh, Irish Stock Exchange listed uh, domiciled in the Cayman Islands. So they were standalone funds but we could also use them as, as overlay products. And the investment universe for that type of product was really London for managers. Um, most of the investors were coming out of, usually out of Switzerland, but also the US. We had investors from a lot of the sovereign wealth fund, funds around the world. There were only a, a limited number of people who, who uh, did that sort of strategy on that scale. So it was, it, yeah, it was, that was... I guess where I spent the majority of, uh, of my career was really in um, with that business. Um, then, uh, really, the GFC caused a fair shakeout in in that industry, particularly within the global macro space. The three major global macro funds, of which we were one, all had sort of high drawdowns at the same time. All at the same time when it's not supposed to happen. Exactly. Yeah. All the sort of benefits of, uh, you know, different strategies and so on tended to come a bit unstuck in that yeah. sort of environment. Post-GFC, there was a significant shakeout in that business and uh, I guess while I had the opportunity to stay there, I'd sort of at that point decided that perhaps my best days as a sort of global macro portfolio manager were, were behind me and that it was an opportunity to to look to do something related but different. Mm. It's at a different stage of life. By then, uh, you know, I'm just financially in a position where I can maybe take the plunge to uh, to, to do something on a smaller scale, another startup, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, to that point, I'd, I'd really spent all of my working life in in dealing rooms and uh you know cbd offices so uh so you know getting back to some real assets had had some real appeal so uh yeah ec partners uh was was sort of born out of that process yeah the question would be really you know what were the main things that led you to make a decision to start up your own business or start up a business together with a couple of people i think it's Couple of partners, in the yeah, 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 yeah. We've got a, a, a couple of partners. Well, I could sort of contrast the two startups, the two key sort of startups that I was involved with. I guess, mm-hmm. the, yeah. The, the first one, as a as a young person with high risk tolerance, there was nothing you know more exciting than having the opportunity to you know have a little bit of exposure to equity, you know, yeah. on a sweat basis. That is something that you don't often get much of a chance yeah. to early in your career, that industry or any of the really big capital intensive yeah. sort of industries. I jumped at that. Later on, we were at a, a stage of life where we felt there was some alignment between the objective of my colleagues. We're all looking for a new challenge. We were sort of mid-career, you're in your late 40s and uh, 
it was an opportunity that you probably, if you don't grab, you'll you'll look back and uh, regret not having had a go. Mm. Mm. Yeah, interesting. So, Ted, can you tell us about your work in EC Partners and what work you do, including your connections to the mining and resources businesses, if you like? Our goal when we were starting EC Partners, and this is at the beginning of the last decade, was that the government policy, and it, although it was contested, it was broadly bipartisan here and we'd seen similar moves overseas, was really at that point starting to really drive economy-wide changes to reduce carbon emissions. Now, none of us were, uh, none of the principals, that is, were committed greenies. We just saw, uh, we just, we believed in the whole, I mean, we was, was say that we believed there was something there and, mm. and we saw a real opportunity to help facilitate what we saw as being a wall of capital that was going to be required to be deployed into particularly the energy sector but also a whole lot of um, industrial sort of processes. And the skills that we variously brought together were sort of banking and finance and and investment management, so a lot of financial modelling. Um, now, they're different type of financial models, but we're moving away from, uh, from large uh, integrated economic and asset pricing models to sort of specific project finance models for particular potential investments. Yeah. And that was our big driver. We also, I guess, had skills and some access to, we had skills in terms of interacting with large institutional investors. So we'd obviously had experience in engaging with those type of investors in our time at at TGM, or at least a couple of the principals came Mm -hmm. from there. We knew how to talk their talk. That was the objective. We, we, joint ventured in this endeavour with a group of power sector veterans. So, yeah, they gave us sort of credibility in the, in the power sector particularly and, and uh, they gave us more access to projects. We maybe looked at the capital. Yeah, we worked for project proponents mm. as well as asset owners and even for landowners um, and the sort of things that we worked on were big wind farms, solar PV. Later on, I mean, solar PV came a fair while, the big wave in solar PV came a fair while after after wind, but solar PV, a lot of it was feasibility analysis and helping proponents prepare um, project finance models in order to seek debt and equity capital. Yeah. From various investors around the From place. Various investors, yeah, and then helping them approach investors or approaching investors on their behalf. So, you, if you like, you knew, from your capital markets experience, you knew what those investors would require of those various project proponents. So you're able to help them put that sort of stuff together, so it was investment ready, if you like, or exactly, yeah. What's another example would be, say, landowners. So solar PV, unlike wind, maybe, but solar PV really at the 
at the industrial scale really, uh, you, you know, has a competition for land. So it's a, there's an alternative use for land because it takes up a large amount of space. So yeah. by the time there are a lot of uh, PV developers looking for adequate sites that had good connection opportunities and so on, the landholders beneath them then need, where, where the landholders were you know, and located in such a way that they were close to good connection assets and they had good solar resources. They were then having to face dealing with large proponents mm. who wanted to option up, you know, large chunks of their land and that would then preclude their own development plans for for different parts of the land depending on what the option structures were. So we worked uh, with uh, with landholders in terms of trying to give them an idea about, you know, the probability of different options being exercised by the proponents and so on. It was an interesting space and is an interesting space. I'd have to say through the 2010s, one of the obstacles that we faced was great uncertainty in government policy. Yeah. Which made investment decisions really hard. We did an awful lot of work on projects that were subsequently sort of snapped up maybe nine years later. But it was, yeah, it was pretty hard because policy was so uncertain. And to a degree, we're sort of reaping the consequences of that in the energy sector at the moment. Yeah. Ted, just in terms of business, what have been your biggest learnings in business so far? Maybe bigger is is sometimes, but not always better. Yeah. So when you're looking at a business, again, perhaps if you're uh, aspiring to be the next Goldman Sachs is uh, the right strategy. And if you've got the right people with the right level of drive and so on, that's fantastic. I think for a lot of people who are maybe currently sort of working for the man or the woman mm. in a big firm who are looking at the uh, you know possibility of establishing a business, I'd say you know, right-sizing their ambitions makes a lot of sense. Yeah. In the end, you're sort of saying, okay, well, if I leave and, you know, I'm going to start this business, what do I want to achieve out of it? And maybe having a strategy that's going to lead you to a sustainable but, you know, reasonably tight-sized firm that you can keep close control over and really manage your growth or manage your growth to a sort of a, a, a sustainable level. So that is a good way to be. In the end, uh, you're sort of establishing the business to meet the needs of the principals. You then end up bringing in other stakeholders, obviously, that you have to, you have to look after. But again, I guess that's a sizing issue. Of the two startups that I've been involved with, the first one grew very, very rapidly and that was fantastic and it was associated you know, with, with the business's success. But as it turned out, the speed of the growth ended up causing problems, as these sort of things often do. Mm-hmm. Again, that's the benefit of hindsight. In looking at, you know, startup businesses or, or at least entrepreneurial sort of pursuit, you need a fair degree of optimism. You probably want to have a mix of, of people where you maybe have some of that optimism tempered uh, by some realists. Yeah. Constructing the sort of right group of people is important where you've got a good mix of not only skills but of uh, of temperaments. Yeah. Other things uh, in terms of learning a business, yeah, I, I'd say honesty and corporate self-reflection in reviewing your successes and your failures as a business. So luck can sort of play an element in both. You can end up then getting the wrong signal, I guess, if all you do as a business is go, gee, that worked, that was great, we made a lot of money out of that, well, let's do a whole lot more of it. Mm. 
where you sort of you've got to look back and go right yeah that worked will it keep working was there luck involved and likewise with failures you can say you can go yeah we tried that we tried that and it, it didn't work maybe don't ditch it because it might have been the wrong place at the wrong time that sort of honesty and the deep reflection in terms of reviewing what you've achieved i think is important yeah. Cash flow management's obviously always going to be key to a to a business. And if you're sort of thinking about it in the startup phase, then um, what initial capital do you require and how are you going to go about getting it? Do you want to size the business so that it's all able to be managed just by the principal's income or do you need to bring in additional capital and how, how do you go about doing that? I think that's good. That gives us a few things to listen to and uh, work out. So, Ted, if you, if you went back to setting up your business, you know, so in the early days of setting up business and if you think of it from this way, you know, we've got plenty of listeners out there that are thinking about doing things or that might be thinking about setting up their own business, what sort of tips would you give anyone considering that and considering what they might do? I think uh, a really sort of careful thought on your ownership structure and governance probably goes without saying that you're going to have a detailed business plan and that plan is got to be what you set out to, to, to do. You've obviously got to be flexible in real time uh, in, in modifying that, you know, in response to events. But at the startup phase, you need really detailed thought on your ownership structure and governance. Yeah. And you need that, that sort of balance between aligning everyone's incentives at that initial stage and still providing the sort of flexibility to allow for growth and perhaps changes in the business as things go on and potentially the need to attract new people and or capital. And an awful lot of upfront thought, I think, uh, needs to go into how to design those, those governance structures by the key principles. And, you know, that, that applies to whether it's a sort of a business establishment or, or I guess, a joint venture agreement. There's sort of similar task. You're really trying to get that incentive alignment while still providing that flexibility. And those things can be overly complicated. So I think you want them as simple as possible, but they sort of need to be as complicated as they need to be, if you, if you know what I mean. Like yeah. you, 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 a, a simple sort of, you know, well, you get one share and I get three, <laughs> very frequently you're going to need some optionality in there. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think simplicity is good, but you're going to need, the, you're going to need a, an amount of complexity in most business structures to, to sort of... Uh, Handle what might come in the future. Exactly. Handle what might come in the future while still keeping everyone's interests aligned. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to do that work yourself. So, you know, lawyers are great. Mm, they can uh, give you some pro formers, but you've got to be able to tell them what you actually need in those pro Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, you do the work yourself and then find the lawyers can sort of tidy it up and make it all into a nice, neat contractual form, but you can't go to them and ask them to, uh, to give you something. Yeah. Yeah, they might be able to give you a few tips along the way, but if you don't know what you're trying to achieve, they can give you a standard template, but it's not going to help you much if something goes wrong. Exactly. Yeah, or if you want to change something in the future. Yeah. yeah. So, no, I think it's it's something that if it's not done properly or not done with adequate thought, can really store up a lot of problems later down the track. Yeah. I mean, that probably most applies to people where you've got more than one 
person involved in it and you've got two or three or something like that particularly or you're trying to grow a business that's quite big with other shareholders absolutely if you if you're a one-man show that's not a problem yeah yeah there's less less requirement but there's still some generally ted we've talked about a few things you talked about some trends in um, energy and things like that you see are there any new any investment trends or new concepts within within the industry that you found interesting lately and that you see applicable to what's going on and particularly in resources and, and the energy sectors at the moment? So energy is obviously quite topical. It is. Moment. It is. I could speak at, at length um, about my uh, frustration with energy policy and, it, and I'm, I'm not sort of trying to make a political uh, statement. There's plenty of blame to go around from all sides of politics and that. I think we've been poorly served by politicians from both stripes and at all levels. And I'd have to say I don't think that we have a clear way forward, you know, Mm. really particularly in in the power sector. I think there's some pain to go ahead in terms of that transition, particularly on the path that it's currently on and with gas lockups at the state level. I think there's a lot of pain ahead. A lot of pain, yeah. In in the power sector. but Yeah, I think um, a few people in that power sector in the particularly in the resources side of things, have been talking to me about predicting this has coming, been coming for a while, so maybe we're in for a bit of pain ahead, as you said, still. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I think the limitations of ESG as a investment thesis, this would be sort of, for, I guess, for individuals. It's become a... A trendy thing, a trendy maybe. thing, maybe. large yeah. trendy thing, and it's always something that's made me uncomfortable because of the someone's view of what's um, ethical and is different from or someone else's or, or sustainable. Yeah. But it's it's grown so big in the meantime. So you've had sort of a lack of transparency. You've got all the difficulty of the definitional problems with what's in and what's out with all of these filters. Huge potential for sort of greenwashing, you know, which is now I think leading to a lot of regulatory interest in the sector. But sort of linking it back to, I guess, the... Difficulties that we're talking about with the power sector, I think there's also a whole lot of unintended unintended consequences of the sort of rapid withdrawal of capital to suddenly make whole sectors almost uninvestable or, you know, for for banks to withdraw, mainstream banks to withdraw financing Financing. to to a whole pile of sectors is, uh, I just think it's really unwise. And it has a whole lot of unintended consequences. I don't know, for example, in terms of the bank sector, it means that the the only debt finance that some of those, maybe some coal businesses can get, comes from parties that perhaps we shouldn't necessarily be be looking at. If the capital's withdrawn, you know, really rapidly, you can sort of see there's an analogy with the thermal power assets here suddenly becoming unreliable. It's very hard as an owner of those to... uh, you might have invested in them as you know, initially as 50-year assets and if you suddenly start seeing their life is not going to be viable for that length of time, then you're not going to maintain them properly and we're going to end up in all sorts of trouble and we can all have an objective of, uh, of um, decarbonising but if the lights go out in the meantime, then we'll set it backwards. It's, yeah. not, it's not a matter of sort of saying, oh, well, you know, well, we try it on the way. If you do that, if you do that and it's in an unruly way, then you'll set the whole process backwards by mm-hmm. another 20 years. So yeah. it might be a little bit of a diversion from the topic. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ted, is there any financial guidance you'd give to someone in your position or younger, you know, when you consider what you've been through and 
what you do, what what sort of things you do when you're starting up a business? On a personal basis, I've always had a bias or an affinity with equities as the sort of investment tool to, to build my wealth over time. You know, I think broad market equities, uh, they give you an exposure to the economy's wealth creation potential like, like nothing else. Mm-hmm. Other things, I'd say... For most people, you know, you want to avoid market timing. So global macro is all about market timing. And, uh, <laughs> or um, taking small, maybe it's small bets on market timing or big bets, yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. 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 I, but it's time in the market rather than for most people. It's it's really what will determine your wealth over a long period of time is investing and sticking and getting into a plan and investing and sticking over a long period of time. Time in the market, not yeah. not market timing. As to sort of structure and so on, then whether it's super or in your own outside of super, dealing with all your tax, setting up plans to meet your personal objectives, that's an area for professionals. I think that's, yeah. that's, that's people like <laughs> Someone yourself. could possibly that's, deal with that. Yeah. That's, that's people like <laughs> yourself, Brett, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Ted, finally, I think to finish off with today, What's your funniest or most memorable story from the site or from your workplace? In your case, it might have been outside of a typical resources workplace, but uh, what's your funniest story from the site? The first job I got, a first full-time job that I got in the UK, very sort of expensive real estate in the you know city of London, so they crowd you all together pretty pretty oh, yeah. tightly. <laughs> and, you know, people might be surprised, but the UK was a long way behind where we were in terms of these sort of things, uh, environmental issues. So tightly plugged together and everyone smokes all the time. So yeah. you just walk into the office and they smoke, and it's just smoke, smoke, smoke. The guy across from you smokes, the person next to you, the person next to you. And I sat across from a fellow who uh, he was 10 years older than me, but he was he was very, um, you know, helpful, good guide to me over a long period. And he, he was the exception to the rule. He didn't smoke. In fact, he'd been a pretty fit sort of bloke. I think he'd, he'd played a few games for Arsenal 10 years earlier when he was pursuing a professional sport career before he found himself in financial markets. And Keith had decided to leave this firm that I was with um, and he was going to a sort of more progressive American firm. So he had to do a physical and... Uh, He'd met all the other requirements for the job, but they were then sort of saying, look, Keith, you know, I don't know that you filled the questionnaire incorrectly. Our insurers looking with some doubt at whether or not they're going to be able to insure you because all those spots on your lungs indicate a, a sort of a lifetime of heavy smoking. He'd never he'd never had a cigarette. Never had a cigarette, so yeah. a, you know, In the desk area there the for de- the last exa- decade. Exactly, yeah. 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 So. God, amazing. Lung cancer. Terrible. Absolutely. So, Ted, thanks for joining us today and for giving our listeners some insight into the commercial and investment world surrounding the resources industry, particularly in the energy sector. It's been a pleasure to have you here. So thank you very much. And for those listening, if you'd like some more information on the work of EC Partners, please reach out to Ted. He's on LinkedIn and you'll see the EC Partners website if you search him. And his details will be on the show notes from today. So, Thanks for listening, and if you have a spare minute, we'd love you to leave us a review and via your favourite platform and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks. Right. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for listening to this episode of Resourceful, stories from the site. 
We'll be back in a month with more tips and insight from our other industry leaders. We'd love to connect with you. You can find us on all the usual social channels and our website, resourcesunearthed.com.au. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode.